the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Perhaps you read the story in the news, although frankly it was buried fairly deeply. Word that the state of California has now officially dispensed with exit exams for high school students. That means that any student attending public high school no longer needs to take and demonstrate a level of proficiency as they complete their high school career. Heretofore, some 40,000 California high school students did not receive their diplomas. They will, though, however, under this new law. Essentially, what does it mean? It means that public education at certain levels is getting so desperate that they're now relaxing standards simply to graduate students. That's got to break the heart of any parent. Parents, I think, at the end of the day, want to make sure that their child's scholastic career is not only a pleasant one, but one that has a tremendous sense of both academic and spiritual purpose. Well, for the spiritual, in California schools, that was outlawed many years ago. And on the academic side, well, news tells us they continue to shirk from their responsibilities. So what are the alternatives? Joining me now is the principal of King's Academy in Sunnyvale, Principal Scott Meadows. And um, Scott, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. What of this idea that suddenly, since we're having a difficult time bringing the students up to the standards, we just simply eliminate the standards? Really? Uh, you, you know, Craig, I think that's um, a sad commentary on the public school system. Uh, again, I think the idea of not having X exams and uh, making sure students have the knowledge they need to have to graduate is, is a very sad commentary in today's society. Um, but that's not the case for us at the King's Academy. Uh, all of our kids would be able to pass the X exam with flying colors. In fact, not just pass the exit exam, but isn't there a higher percentile of students that matriculate through King's Academy that at the end of the day are able to go on to two- and four-year colleges and universities? Absolutely. Virtually 100% of our kids go on to uh, college, whether it's two years or four-year colleges, and we have an extensive profile of uh, quite well-known universities that they're going to. Our average ACT score uh, for the composite for this past year was 27, and the state composite was 22.8, uh, and our SAT scores as well were uh, much, much higher uh, than what the state average would be. And I guess part of this is not only demonstrative of the dedication to academic excellence, but I've got to believe from a Christian perspective, knowing that the spiritual component of a child's well-being and and nurturing has got to make a difference, and that certainly is a a major aspect of what is provided to your students at King's Academy. Talk to me about that. Well, absolutely. The King's Academy, the uh, spiritual component, is one of three components to our mission statement, which is uh, all about academic excellence, servant leadership, and enduring relationships. So, for the King's Academy, we want to educate the whole child, including the spiritual component. Uh, so our school includes uh, biblical studies as part of the graduation requirement. All of our students go on mission trips each year, uh, required to have 35 hours community service, which they satisfy that when they go 
down to Mexico in their uh, freshman sophomore years and build houses uh, for the, the the people that can't afford them in Mexico. Uh, we go on mission trips to Guatemala, to Japan, uh, to to all over the world. Uh, we've been going to places: Costa Rica, Ecuador, and we've established relationships with missions on these foreign fields. So our kids are exposed to the needs of others, uh, and they learn about serving others, which is critical to us. And then they uh, build these relationships with their 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 peers, with the faculty. Uh, and administration, and they come back to serve often on our campus. So it sounds like the the viewpoint, the perspective of addressing both spiritual development, mental or um, intellectual development, and and body as well, it really encompasses this three point approach at King's Academy. That's that's correct. We try to approach all aspects of uh, the physical condition, uh, but we also do it in conjunction with uh, the home the church and the school. So we don't believe that it's just our job to educate. We believe that also is coordinated with the home uh, and other outside entities that these uh, students work with. So, so a partnership, really, in that sense? Uh, absolutely. We partner with parents. That's what we say all the time. Um, so we, we think it's important to, uh, you know, physically we have wonderful uh, programs for the kids in sports, you know, over 21 different sports that they can play on the varsity level, JV level, and even the junior high level our kids participate in football and basketball and baseball and softball and swimming and all the things you can think of, uh, and my favorite, golf. Uh, so we do that and help the physical condition. But then the, the academic is, is very, very important. You know, kids want to get into good colleges, and parents want to make sure their kids are prepared to go to a UC school or to go to Stanford or to go to Berkeley. And we've got kids in all those locations. And so it's important to get them academically challenged. But if they go off to college and they don't have their spiritual condition – uh, fed and ready to be strong uh, in the collegiate environment, then, then parents are concerned. So we take a lot of time uh, at the school through biblical integration and uh, instruction and chapel services. And every fall we go on retreats with the kids and take them off just to spend time working on a spiritual condition. And it pays off. Indeed, and, and certainly as we alluded to in, in the opening moments of our conversation, it's one thing to prepare a student for, to pass a test. It's another thing to prepare a student for life, and it sounds like that's a bigger perspective taken by King's Academy, that it's, it's much broader than simply saying, have we stuffed enough information into their minds to get them to matriculate from here to a two- or four-year college? And I would imagine toward that end, um, there's a strong emphasis on college preparatory curriculum at King's Academy? It is. I mean, King's Academy, is a, it's a Christ-centered college prep school. It serves over 950 students in grades 6 to 12 in Sunnyvale. Uh, we focus on the academics. We've, uh, like I said, we, we have uh, uh, added AP classes to our classes now. We have over 20 AP classes. Uh, our average score on the AP exams last year was 3.83. Uh, 88% of our students that took the exam passed with a 3, 4, or 5. Um, 64% with a 4 or 5. So excellent scores in all those type areas from the academic college prep end, and our you know, the end result is where do kids go to college? You know, are they getting into good schools? And we've had kids get into Stanford and Berkeley, uh, UCLA, USC every single year. Uh, kids are going off to these really good schools, uh, several Ivy League schools, and um, so they go there. But they, a lot of them also choose to go to uh, private religious colleges. And we're just as proud of those kids that choose to go into Biola, Pepperdine, Baylor, 
some fine academic institutions that are also Christian in origin. For so parents eavesdropping on our conversation today, Principal Meadows, that would like to go a little bit deeper, get more information about the King's Academy, I understand that you've got an open house coming up on Saturday, October the 21st at 11 a.m. Tell us more about that. So, yes, the open house uh, at 562 North uh, Britain Avenue in Sunnyvale uh, is a great opportunity for parents to come uh, hear from the principal and several of uh, the key administrators about the important things we do at King's Academy. We'll talk about the mission and vision of the school. We'll talk about uh, the academics. And then we take a break and give all the parents a tour of the facilities and then have they have an opportunity to meet staff members at individual tables to talk to the history professors, the English professors, and the different departments if they want to get more answers. So we're from 11 to 1 uh, with this open house. It's a great opportunity to find out more about King's Academy. And if folks would like to get more information, um, again, concerning the upcoming open house that'll be on Saturday, October the 21st at 11 a.m. at the campus there in Sunnyvale. Where can they go for more information? Well, they can go to our website at www.tk.org, and that's tk.org, or they can call the school at 408-481-9900, and they can get more information both ways. And again, the telephone number is area code 408-481-9900. That's 408-481-9900. Or online at tka.org. Think of the King's Academy, tka.org. Our thanks to Principal Scott Meadows for being with us today, and um, thanks again so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. And again, more information available on the web about the upcoming Open House, Saturday, October the 21st at 11 a.m. Go online to tka.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you think about building a structure, you're going to put up a house, an apartment complex. What do you need? Well, you need some important elements. First, you need the earth below it capable of supporting the weight of the building, so you don't want to have it on shifting sand. It's probably not good to have it on the edge of a cliff, right? Then you need to have upon that earth footings or a foundation that is capable of supporting the weight of the structure of the building, upon which then on that foundation goes the frame. Inside the frame goes things like plumbing and electrical, water, sewer, the like. On top of the frame go the walls to provide warmth and coolness, a roof over top, to provide protection for the elements. Then in the interior, you want things like carpeting, heating, air conditioning to make the home comfortable. And then things like a kitchen to prepare meals, a bath, sleeping quarters, living quarters to make it habitable. But if you think about it, in all that entire process of going from no structure to a completed structure capable of supporting habitability or life, it all starts with one thing a plan. Blueprints. My guest tonight, I think, would suggest that as we look at the amazing structure that we call home, called planet Earth, inside our galaxy, traveling about here in this amazing Milky Way, that in order for us to arrive at a place of habitability on planet Earth, there had to be a plan. The book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. Joining us today is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, best-selling author who mentioned quite a number of number one bestsellers to his name. We're pleased to have join us today Dr. Hugh Ross. And Dr. Ross, always a delight and an education to have you with us. 
Oh, thank you for inviting me. You know, we think about habitability, and, and uh, I, I think the example is you cite inside the pages of Improbable Planet that the the correlation between the capacity of, of creating a structure that allows us to put up a building and finally arrive at a place where we can inhabit and enjoy it, provide it uh, its serviceable use to us, uh, is very much uh, equal to equating life's sustainability features of Earth, aren't they? Well, they are, and what the book documents is the amount of design and fine-tuning you need, not just for life, but for plants and animals, and not just for plants and animals, but for human beings, and especially for human beings, where billions of us can live on the planet at one time and develop the technology where we can hear and respond to the redemptive message, the real reason why the Creator created the universe. And what we see is that the level of design goes up exponentially with each step. And so it actually begins with a Bible study I did where I noted that every creation text links the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of redemption and how the Bible states that God actually uh, starts his works of redemption before he creates anything. That would imply that everything that God creates is for the purpose of redemption. And that launched a three-year study on my part through the scientific literature to put that to the test. And indeed, that's what came out, is that literally every component of the universe, of Earth, of Earth's life, and every event in the history of the universe, Earth and Earth's life, plays a critical role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings in a short window of time. And, of course, not only playing a critical role, but it, it gives um, every every step, every aspect, just as I suggested with the, what you would need to create a structure that would be habitable for us to enjoy, uh, for, for livability. Uh, the same thing is true of planet Earth, that this is not just all coming together by accident. You speak of um, some of the features of planet Earth, for example, that are Necessary. They're essential to human life. Things like uh, the geographical, the chemical, atmospheric, biological, astronomical features of this planet that make it not only unique, but as you suggest in the book, um, going from simply the ability to sustain complex life to even having a reason why it's capable of sustaining that life. Yeah, I'll give you one example. I mean, for billions of humans to live on the planet at one time, we have to be living in an ice age cycle where the planet cycles between 10% ice coverage and 23% ice coverage, where the period of the cycle is 100,000 years. And this is the only time in Earth's history where we've had such a cycle. Moreover, to have billions of people develop technology, we have to be living in the warm interglacial period, which is 10% ice coverage, that follows the most severe ice age in the entire ice age cycle. And you've probably heard of things like climate warming and climate stability. What I document in the book is that we're living in a unique time window in the entire history of the Earth. The past 9,000 years, we've seen extreme climate stability at the optimal temperature for human civilization. Why? Because seven cycles in the variation of Earth's orbit and a rotation axis all came together to open up this unique time window. We've been in 9,000 years. At most, we can sustain it for another 1,000. And so God is giving us this brief time window in which we can take the redemptive message to all the people groups of the world and have them respond. And from a biblical perspective, this universe is a pathway to a far better universe. 
Dr. Yoon Ross, our guest today, a look at his new book, Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. The new book, by the way, just published by Baker Books. And, uh, yeah, you're thinking about gift-giving perhaps already. Um, Thanksgiving's just a couple of weeks away. Before you know that, soon after, of course, it'll be Christmas time. And uh, a book like this can not only be great for any skeptic, but anyone who wants to understand sort of the deeper story from the scientific reasoning uh, behind not only how things came to be, how man came to be, but most importantly, some of the reasons why. We'll get to more of those reasons why as our conversation with Dr. Hugh Ross continues and our look at Improbable Planet. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation continues with best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. Dr. Ross, in some respects, is this book sort of the sequel to um, your previous book that, that opens up the subject matter of why the universe is the way it is? Yeah, to some degree it is. I mean, that book was basically targeting how God designed the universe to eliminate evil and suffering. This book goes on to talk about how God designed the earth and all of its life so we can understand and respond to uh, his purpose for creating, namely to redeem us into a new creation, a new realm beyond this one. There are others out there, um, I think of the Carl Sagans of the world, that would suggest as we look at the layers of complexity that we're going to have you go into this evening, that all of this in relationship to Earth's capacity to support life is just simply an amazing coincidence. What of that notion? Well, often they're not looking at uh, the number of coincidences. Yeah, you could say maybe four or five of them are just coincidental, but when it adds up to hundreds and even thousands, that's what this book documents, thousands of different aspects of the history and the components have to be fine-tuned to make possible the existence of billions of human beings on the Earth. A few, maybe. Thousands, no. It's, it's clear evidence that God is controlling things. In fact, they argue, and I said this in front of scientific audiences, if we actually look at science from a redemptive perspective, we have a more efficient tool for rapidly advancing scientific progress. I mean, if indeed everything that we see in creation is for the purpose of redemption, that should give us a tool for discovery. And the book basically documents the success of that approach to science. And, of course, what's critical about uh, this research that you've done is not only do you demonstrate that there are thousands of factors involved uh, that need to be in place, but also the the tight measurements, um, the the tight confines to which um, something can swing from being compatible and habitable to suddenly inhabitable. I mean, for example, uh, we have temperatures across Earth, some of the highest temperatures in, in the deserts that reach 115, 120 degrees. I suppose if we saw that ratchet up by 10 or 15 more degrees and saw that take place in more places across the planet, suddenly planet Earth goes from being habitable to inhabitable pretty quickly. And a lot of that has to do with just simple things like the the, the tilt of the Earth, doesn't it? Well, it does, and there's a chapter in the book, Chapter 7, where I talk about habitable zones. Because you've probably heard that a number of my fellow astronomers will say, well, there's 40 billion planets in, our, in the habitable zone or Milky Way galaxy alone. But all they're looking at is water habitability. Today we know of nine distinct habitable zones. So, for example, in addition to the water habitable zone, you got the ultraviolet habitable zone the astrophere habitable zone, uh, the atmospheric electric field habitable zone. 
Now, we do know of 3,600 planets outside of our solar system, but of all the planets we discovered, there's only one planet that resides in all nine habitable zones, and that's the one you and I are sitting on. And unless it resides simultaneously in all nine habitable zones, the planet is not habitable. So they're really being unfair then. It's almost as if they're picking and choosing when they suggest, uh, based on some of these calculations, that there could be up to 40 billion possible habitable planets uh, in the Milky Way galaxy. But it doesn't take into consideration all of these factors suggesting that the notion that Earth can have a life-supporting twin is probably unlikely? That's right. They're picking the most generous zone and ignoring the ones that are the most restrictive. I mean, water is the third most abundant molecule in the universe. The universe is really wet. So the fact that we find water in a lot of places is no big surprise, but there's eight other factors that need to be taken into account. Moreover, the structure of the planets. You know, we have eight planets in our solar system. It was actually born with ten. And unless those ten are all fine-tuned exactly the way they were or are, you cannot have advanced life on planet Earth. And of course, what's fascinating about this, as I suggested in the opening remarks, that as you make in the book, the comparison between uh, the building of a habitable planet to the building of a habitable building, that uh, in both cases it starts with having the essential construction materials at hand. And even the balance of that is very unique to planet Earth, is it not? It is. There's a chapter in the book on dirt where I basically encourage people, don't take dirt for granted. Our planet has got the only dirt that allows you to grow uh, food grains. I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw that movie about the Martian that showed Matt Damon growing potatoes on Mars. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Well, the soil of Mars has got 60 times as much sulfur as Earth does. You're not going to be able to grow anything on Mars unless you bring soil from planet Earth. Fascinating. And, of course, with that idea, not only is it essential that you have the right construction materials, but there's another factor here, uh, and that is anybody that's going to build a building, let's say it's for, uh, uh, you know, uh, living purposes, you want to make sure it's in the right neighborhood. Nobody's going to put up a beautiful uh, three- or four-bedroom home with a swimming pool and put it right in the middle of an industrial park that's surrounded by nothing but uh, light industry and large warehouses. And I guess the same thing is equally true, in a sense, in relationship to not just that we exist, but where Earth is situated in relationship to, uh, what should we call it, the rest of our, our neighborhood here in the Milky Way galaxy? Well, in order for advanced light to be possible, our solar system must be born in the most dangerous part of our Milky Way galaxy, relatively close to the center of the galaxy. That's so we can get enriched with sufficient heavy elements from exploding stars. But it's essential we get kicked out right, at, right after we get enriched, and we see about our sun is it got kicked out from the most dangerous place in our Milky Way galaxy and situated in the safest place in our Milky Way galaxy. And that happens to be the only place in our Milky Way galaxy where we astronomers can observe the entirety of the universe and directly witness the cosmic creation event. So God not only put us in the best possible place uh, for civilization, he also put us in the best possible place 
to make scientific discoveries. And there's also something that I learned fascinating inside the pages of your new book, Improbable Planet, and that is this notion that as much as suggesting that there is up to 40 billion possible habitable planets that discounts a lot of critical factors, then, too, isn't it true that this notion that uh, there are other galaxies that could support life? For example, you make an A-B comparison between the characteristics of the Milky Way galaxy versus the Andromeda galaxy. Tell us about what some of those critical distinctions are. Well, often we look at the Andromeda galaxy and call it a sister galaxy because of how much it looks like the Milky Way. But when you look at its spiral arm structure, it's warped and it's distorted. Why? Because it suffered a collision from a fairly big dwarf galaxy just a half billion years ago. And the warping and the distortion is such that it eliminates the possibility of advanced life in that galaxy. And there's actually 200 different features of our Milky Way galaxy that must be exquisitely fine-tuned for advanced life to be possible. You, know, you have to have a spiral arm structure. The spiral arms have to be extremely symmetrical, and they have to have the right space between the spiral arms. The galaxy's got to be the right mass. It needs to have a high ratio of dark matter uh, to ordinary matter in it, and it's got to be relatively free of spurs and feathers between the arms. And we have studied thousands of other spiral galaxies, Ours is the only one that meets the characteristics that advanced life needs. And if you take a look at those two differences, if, if the characteristics that you observe of the Andromeda galaxy were present in the Milky Way galaxy, that would then suggest that life could not be sustainable on planet Earth inside the Milky Way? You might build a bacteria that could exist for a few months, but you wouldn't have plants, animals, and you certainly wouldn't have human beings. It just becomes that uh, hostile, in other words, to the ability of sustaining life. Everywhere we look in the universe, we see hostility for advanced life except in our planet Earth. And, you know, after a while, you look at this, and as much as nobody looks at a fantastic building, you look at the Pyramid uh, Transamerica building in downtown San Francisco, you take a look at the Sears Tower in Chicago, look at the um, Empire State Building in New York City, and you've got to think to yourself, that took forethought, that took engineering ability, that took planning, that took science, that took not only uh, a sense of vision, but also a sense of the end game, a sense of what the purpose would be. And as we're learning today from Dr. Hugh Ross, there's more than just planning behind the presence of life on Earth, but in fact, purpose, too. We'll talk a bit about that as well and when we continue with our conversation. The new book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home, newly published by Baker Books, available through the usual suspects. Get it online at Amazon.com. You can also order it directly through Reasons to Believe simply by going to Reasons.org. That's Reasons.org. We'll come back to more of our conversation with best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we're learning today, even when somebody like Carl Sagan suggests that millions of life planets must exist, um, suggesting that there is nothing unusual or extraordinary about planet Earth, Dr. Hugh Ross is proving the contrary to be true, that there are complexities about this planet that make life here possible that with uh, just a variety of changes here and there would suddenly make its sustainability impossible. Toward that end, you also talk in the book, as you sort of lead to this uh, 
logical conclusion, Dr. Ross, that if Earth is capable of sustaining physical life, as it's demonstrated down through its history, um, we've certainly have seen also then the ability of it to sustain physical life along with mind-possessing life. But you take it a step further. You suggest that not only can the planet sustain physical life and mind-possessing life, but also spiritual life. Tell me more about that. Yes. I mean, uh, the, the whole purpose for God creating is to bring about a redemptive relationship between him and the human species. And we're told in the Bible that he intends to bring a countless number into that relationship. And the Greeks account up to a billion, so he's talking billions. So that implies that the earth must be designed in such a way to support billions of people at one time. And that only began to happen 9,000 years ago. Only for the past 9,000 years has that been possible. And we also notice that uh, he salted the earth uh, with all the resources we need to make possible the technology we need to take the good news of redemption to all the people groups of the world. Everything is targeting purpose. I would argue that the earth and its inhabitants, all of its life, all of its history, screams that there's purpose for humanity and actually targets us to exactly what that purpose is. And so I'm amazed at all the new scientific discoveries of the past two years. I mean, one thing we discovered is that uh, in order for plate tectonics to start and be sustained, you need life to be created at the same time and to be sustained throughout that time. Life requires plate tectonics, plate tectonics requires life, and all that plate tectonics and life is necessary to provide us with the resources so that billions of human beings can hear and respond to the redemptive message. Is this eventually going to force those that come at this purely from a scientific standpoint and wish to go no further, um, that as we look at the progression of well, the laws of physics and their impact on planet Earth, natural selection, its impact, ultimately coming to the slow realization that for there to be laws, for there to be natural selection, there must be a source for all of that? Well, I think so. I mean, I was at a conference once where atheist scientists were speaking, and they all insisted that there was no God, but they also insisted that we human beings have purpose. We got value. Uh, we have some kind of eternal destiny. And it's like none of that makes sense if there is no God. But if God designed this universe uh, so that we did have purpose and ultimate destiny, then it all makes sense. But what that revealed to me is that we human beings, no matter how hard we try, cannot deny that within us we have purpose, we have meaning, we have value. It's written upon our hearts. I mean, it tells us that in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I find that even committed atheists have a very difficult time denying that. Yes, yeah, some of the um, some of the remarks made by even um, Richard Dawkins over the last year or two are beginning to suggest that there's a bit of thawing, <laughs> even of his position. Yes. Well, I mean, what I admire about Richard Dawkins, he says, science can test religious ideas. I agree with him on that. And I'm eager to try to use science as a tool to test competing religious ideas. Part of the science also um, beginning to put some holes into Charles Darwin's theory, and I asked that question because Darwin, of course, always held that there was a presumption of development and transformation of development of life on the planet that was slow, it was smooth, it was gradual, it was contiguous, but you argue in the book that that just simply isn't so. 
Well, I do. In uh, Chapter 12, I talk about what's called the faint sun paradox, how the sun today is 20 to 25 percent brighter than it was when God first created life. But light can only tolerate about a 2 percent change in the solar brightness. And we notice is that uh, we see in these mass extinction and mass speciation events that life is wholesale removed from planet Earth and shortly thereafter replaced with completely different species of life. But we notice about those replacements, they're more efficient at pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So as the sun gets progressively brighter and brighter, the greenhouse effect of Earth's atmosphere becomes progressively weaker and weaker, keeping the temperature on the surface of the Earth ideal for life. But my point is this, only a mind that knows the future physics of the sun and the Earth will know which light to remove and with new life to replace that removed life with. And it's actually stated that way in uh, Psalm uh, 104, that it's a property of all light to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. If he's not constantly removing light and replacing that light, then quickly the sun's luminosity makes it impossible for any life to be sustained for the rest of the history of the earth. So this is a classic example if we integrate across the scientific disciplines, that's where we see that the holes in the Darwinian paradigm are not just in one discipline, they're in all the disciplines. And, and fascinating, even as we make that comparison to something as simple as a seed falling to the earth and dying and then giving forth life, that even right. in the most simplicity um, of, of creation, it's there. Well, one thing I talk about in the book is that the grains that are crucial for feeding our planet they only existed in the very recent history of Earth. It literally took billions of years of preparation of previous life forms to make possible the existence of rice and wheat and oats and millet. And without that, we couldn't feed our population. So if we string all of this together, Earth's providing essential construction materials situated in the right neighborhood, the uniqueness of our solar system, all of this is sort of builds layer upon layer. Um, we begin to slowly draw the conclusion that all of this has to come together with a plan, and if a plan, there must be a architect, there must be a planner, and as you suggest at the conclusion of the book, ultimately that leads us back to the notion that God himself planned and prepared Earth as our home. He did, and he particularly targeted us human beings not just a God creating a home for life. He wanted a home where there'd be sentient beings that could come into a relationship with him. All of it exists for us human beings. Ultimately, what would you conclude is, is your intent in terms of the, the takeaway um, for readers that look at this book, either because they're trying to understand more from a scientific viewpoint or see the deeper correlation between uh, the creator and the creation. What's the big takeaway in, in, in the way you've approached writing this book? Well, the universe has to be exactly the size that it is. Every star, every planet, every comet, uh, every bacterium, every life form, every event in history, the universe and the Earth and Earth's life, has to be exactly the way it is for us human beings uh, to exist and to develop the kind of civilization we need to discover God and come into relationship with Him. The takeaway I hope people will realize is that we human beings are incredibly valuable in the sight of the Creator and that He has a purpose uh, for us. He wants us to discover that purpose 
So I end the book by basically challenging people where there's a purpose for humanity in general, but God has designed a special purpose for every individual human being. The purpose he has for me is different from all the other 7.5 billion people on the earth. I need to find what that purpose is and fulfill it in a few decades that God has me here in this creation. And, of course, what's so wonderful about the conclusions that we can draw at the end of Improbable Planet is that this um, spinning sphere upon which we call home is far too complex, too detailed, and too involved to simply have happened by accident. And if created, then therefore a creator. If designed with purpose, then certainly there must be a designer and a plan in place. The book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home, newly released by Baker Books. You'll find it available through Bay Area bookstores as well as directly through Reasons to Believe at reasons.org. That's reasons.org. The book again called Improbable Planet by our guest tonight, best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross, as always, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And again, the book available through reasons.org. That's reasons.org. Improbable Planet by Dr. Hugh Ross. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.